series, we're going to go through the Gospel of Matthew. And one of the advantages of going through a book is you get to go through everything. And one of the disadvantages is you can't skip anything, even if it's sad. And so this is, this too is part of God's Word. It's the, the way through to hope. It's Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23. And so let's read it, and then we'll pray and we'll, look, we'll study it. This is God's word. It says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there for, until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, in all that region who were two years old and or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. And this is God's word. It's absolutely true and trustworthy, and he gives it to us because he loves us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in the scriptures, in your word, you help us make sense of both the the, the horrible things and the, the good things we have in life. And so I pray that as we look at this text, you would help those who are grieving. Just help us to see that Jesus really did come in to redeem all, all aspects of this life, even the miseries, uh, so that we might, we might have a conquering champion to put our trust in, for only he came through um, righteous. So help us to see, our, see Jesus living and dying in our behalf, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at this, this is a pretty horrific passage that... This is that we talked about the wise men last week, but the wise men went home, and Joseph was told in the middle of the night, "You better leave now, or your family's going to be destroyed." And that's really the impression that Joseph quick gathered his family. They fled to Egypt in the middle of the night as refugees, fleeing systematic violence and oppression. And Herod, feeling like a fool, he wasn't tricked; he was just paranoid. Um, in a moment of irrational rage, called for want to do one of the most despicable things you could do on this earth, which is slaughter the innocent. And so it's horrific because of the tragedy. It's hard to read because even that quote from Jeremiah is just, it's powerful, it's moving, it's a um, picture of a grieving mother. You could say it's timely, too, because it's, it's telling you, and this is what we're going to look at, God's telling us through this passage how to make sense of evil in this world. 
and that the evil hasn't changed. I mean, the evil is still happening. There's still b villages and children being bombed and, and hurt all across the world. There are things that happen to us that are going to cause us to weep uncontrollably like we just read. And so we need to, to see this is why Jesus came, uh, to turn mourning into gladness. And uh, we have to look at the morning to be able to go on that journey to, to the joy that Jesus came to, to bring. It's a timely passage. I would say it's timely in the sense, too, that um, our country is debating how do you treat refugees. And here you have a, a very clear picture that Jesus himself and his family had to live, lives, live their lives from the beginning, at least as a refugee. There, he was a stranger in a foreign land. And really, that's one of the messages of the Bible, that Jesus redeemed every aspect of life from uh, being in the, the danger of a miscarriage in the womb all the way through to, to the crucifixion. Right? And I, I would also say this is timely because we're reading about people who had their hope violently ripped from them, and, and we are living in a culture now that... Um, well, at least we're being told to be more hopeless. And I think the statistics are saying that people more and more, as their life gets more difficult, do not know how to deal with it. And so I read a study this week that says, out of white people alone, right, in the last 15 years in New York State, 40 to 45% of the deaths are due to drugs, alcohol, and suicide. And that number shot up 50% in the last 15 years. Right. That the white people had the highest increase, and that's just the way the study went. Everybody is an increase across the board, but, but as things get more difficult, um, people are turning to other to substances, or just giving up completely. And so that's what I'm saying. We even though this is going to be hard to look at, we we need this passage to make sense of the world in which we live. It pulls back the curtain and says, this is what the world is. It's full of anger, it's full of darkness, it's full of death. And even as you're comfortable now, sooner or later something's going to happen that's going to cause you to grieve. And you need to, be, to get ready now before the flood comes, so to speak. Right, that's what we sang. We, we live in a, mid of fl a flood of mortal ills, we, we sang in a mighty fortress. And our, we have an ancient foe who's armed with cruel hate, and so as we look at this, the, the big question for you is, where do you find your hope in face of, of hard realities when the world rages around you? Because this is what we're going to look at is the three, three different aspects. So we, we're all trying to figure that out. How do you hold on to hope when hope is, has been ripped away? And Matthew says there's three dangers that Jesus was born into, the, the, the rage of a dying world, uh, suffering, the rage of kings, call it systemic oppression, whatever you want to call it like that. Or, and also we're going to see the rage of the dragon, which I'll explain that when we get there. And so let's look at this, because we need, we need to be equipped. Let's look at the rage of a dying world in verses 13 to 23. Because it's Matthew showing us, this is a story, that our first enemy to having hope, to keep our head above water when things, bad things happen. It's just the reality of death, a dying world. And it's, it's graphically portrayed for us by Her Herod's slaughter of these children. Because you remember what happened, let's get the context. That wise men came from the east, 
And they came to Herod and said, the king of Jews, the Jews have been born. And Herod, being the paranoid man that he was, said, all right, well, tell me when you find him, and I too will come and worship him. Right? He's planning to deceive all along. He, wanted, he did not want anyone else to take his throne. Right? And so what happened was God warned the Magi to go home a different way. And Joseph was warned. They fled in the middle of the night. They went to Egypt. Egypt was a common place for refugees to run to. There was at least a million Jews living in Egypt at the time. And so whenever things got bad, everyone ran to Egypt. And Herod, being the stable guy that he was, took the, the silence as mockery. Right? It's, it's a scary thing, really, when something happens that's really small and somebody doesn't have the, the cushion to deal with it. You know, or when somebody's so self-absorbed absorbed that every slight is a threat and makes, turns everything into violence. It's not how things ought to be, and so this is what Herod does. He, he, he goes into a murderous rage, and he sends soldiers to kill these boys. And uh, statistics, the, the historians guess it's about 12 to 30 little boys, two and under. I always thought it was more, but it's a small, it's a small region. And... Uh, just because it's a small number doesn't take away the grief. And part of the reason this is so hard, I mean, one, people, well, I'll tell you, tell you this. Historians would say, secular historians aren't even sure if this happened because not very many people mention it. But when you study the history and see what Herod was like, this is completely believable because 12 to 30 little boys are nothing more than just a sad footnote to the horror that Herod wrought. He was so paranoid he didn't want to share his throne with his sons, so they were killed, two of them. One of his wives he had executed because he didn't trust her. When he came to power, he executed the family of the previous dynasty. At one point, he, he didn't like the pushback he got from the leaders in Jerusalem, because he's king in Ju Judea and Jerusalem. And so he had executed half of the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders. And on his deathbed, he knew that nobody was going to be sad when he died. And so in order to make sure that there'd be weeping for his funeral, he, he sent out orders for 2,000 important men to come in. And you don't ignore an order from this king because it's a death penalty to ignore it. And he had them all locked up in a building. And so the moment he died from a horrible disease, uh, his stomach basically, he was eaten from the inside out. Uh, the moment he died, he said, I want these men to be killed so at least there'll be grief while I'm gone. All right. This is a despicable dude. Indeed, fortunately, no one took his orders seriously after he died. I mean, they let him out. But you're getting this picture is that he is facing with the reality that he's going to lose his hope. He's facing death. He's not always going to be in control. And he reacts violently. Or in the, in the case of the victims, right, they, they've lost their hope and they grieve. And so regardless, what this passages teaching you and confronting you with in a horrible way. Um, which, by the way, if you're living in a, in a war zone, this is extremely comforting. And it's saying that our earthly hopes are always in danger of being violently ripped away because that's what death is. And it's going to lead to either grief or rage. Now, I'll show you the grief side from Rachel in verse 18. It's a quote from, from Jeremiah 31. It's, it's heartbreaking. You heard this voice in Ramah. 
weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they're no more. And Rachel is a, a figure from Old Testament history, right? She's Jacob's favorite wife. Remember Jacob? Israel. He had two wives, Rachel and Leah. Rachel was the more attractive one. He loved her more. And she's being pictured here as the mother of Israel grieving. It's a poetic picture of Rachel weeping in the grave. That's how sad this moment is. And there are actually three places in the Bible where Rachel weeps. Uh, First is in her life. Her last son, Benjamin, uh, Rachel died in childbirth. And and we're told in Genesis 36 that she named Benjamin, actually Benoni, which means the son of my sorrow. And she's weeping because she's going to lose him. She died. And she's actually buried in Ramah, in that region. So that's why it's talking about this land. And in Jeremiah's day, Jeremiah quotes this picture, right, of of Rachel weeping. Jeremiah's day is when God's people were going to go into some horrific suffering, the exile. This is after the destruction of Jerusalem. Mothers have been separated from their children. Babies have been slaughtered as an army came in and showed no mercy. And Ramah was the place where they would land before they'd be shipped off to Babylon. It was like a detention center. So you picture of all the pictures you have of, of the Holocaust, of the Jews all landing in one place before being shipped off to another camp. That's what's happening in Ramah. And so the, Jeremiah is saying, look at Rachel, she's weeping. Just because of this horrific tragedy. And she can't control her grief because she's terrified that her hope will never be restored because she's lost her children. And so you get in this picture that Rachel's tears are a picture or a description. They're the tears of anyone who's ever lost anything. Who's ever had their hope violently ripped from them. I mean, she's the physical embodiment of a life of disappointment and pain. And her tears are the physical picture of grief and anger, which is saying, this is not how the world ought to be. I don't want to say goodbye. So what do you do with that? And one, it's telling you, yeah, we, we know this, that death tells us our hopes won't last. And we, we try and avoid it at all costs. But I think it's, as part of Jesus' story, he's trying to show you that we need to get ready for it. To put together a theology of suffering before you get blindsided. So we can grieve, but with hope. And that's where it's going. How do you grieve with hope? Because Matthew says that Rachel's tears, the tears of all of us who have lost, and that's all of us, he says it's been fulfilled in Jesus. What in the world is, how does that work? And so whenever Matthew, this is just a helpful Bible reading, whenever Matthew quotes an Old Testament passage, it's helpful to go back and read the whole context, because he's giving you a snapshot, but he wants the whole impression in front of your eyes. And if you read the whole chapter of Jeremiah 31, right after God, this picture of Rachel weeping, God turns around and says to her, stop crying. Wipe, wipe the tears from your eyes. Keep your voice from weeping. Which is exactly what you don't say to somebody grieving, right? That's, that's bad counseling. You don't go to a funeral and say, just stop. Right? Unless it's... Right, unless the tears are something that's not life and death, right? If you're a Falcons fan. 
<laughs> Sorry. Uh, but God has the audacity to turn around and look at these people who have had their hope violently ripped away and say, don't cry anymore. Your hope's going to be restored to you. There is a future. That even though your grief is real, I'm going to do something that will give you a hope that will last. I've loved you with an everlasting love. I have not forgotten you. I'm going to bring my people back. I'm going to give you a land, and this is going to be a land where all things sad come untrue. I'm going to turn your tears into joy. That's what Jeremiah 31 says. And on top of that, I'm going to forgive you, that you might know me. And so Matthew just breaks this down. He wants you to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of Rachel's tears, that Jesus going down into Egypt and coming back is actually a picture of hope to say, look, the tears will end, that the, way, the one through whom God is going to make all these things happen has been born. Your hope is coming back to Israel. Look at him. Because right, before, in, in this passage, it's, we've got this other fulfillment, that out of Egypt I called my son. Jesus goes down to Egypt. It's an odd way to think about it, to say this is a prophecy, but it's trying to get you to see that Jesus is going through all the things that God's people have gone through. He's going down into Egypt, and God, out of compassion, is going to bring him back. And this next passage of Jeremiah 31 is trying to say, look, your hope is coming back. The coming out of exile, your hope's going to be restored. This This whole thing, the whole Bible, is actually about Jesus. And so this is the picture. Jesus is God's beloved son who's going to suffer all kinds of indignities, the indignity of being a refugee. And God, because Jesus is his beloved son, is going to pay close attention to him, bring him out of Egypt to dry up the eyes of his people. Your eyes, my eyes. Mourning's going to be turned to joy. And so this is what Matthew's teaching through this. You put all this, this stuff together. I know it's hard, it's abstract, because we don't think the way the, the, the Hebrews thought. But it's saying that Jesus is the one who was born to end all tears. He's the one who's going to silence all wailing through his suffering. He's the one born to die to give us a living hope. That's what Matthew's telling you. He's saying all your hopes... God poured out his love on Israel and they failed. God's poured out his love on Jesus. He's going to succeed. Do you believe that? (laughs) Because it's no accident that Jesus was sent. This is all part of God's plan. When it says the scriptures have been fulfilled, Matthew's saying this was God's plan all along. He is in control of every detail, even over these horrific things, that he's going to work evil for good of his people. And that Jesus is going to go down into slavery, come back home to live a life of rejection in Nazareth. That's the other prophecy, that, he's, that he would be called a Nazarene. And there's actually no place in the Old Testament where it says that. It's, it's giving you an impression that Jesus grew up in Nazareth, and people from Nazareth were, they, they would have been called the trailer trash of their day, to be blunt. Nobody, nothing, does nothing, anything good come out of Nazareth. It's, it's a small town. I mean, you go anywhere in, in New York State. I've lived in several places, and the funniest thing is everywhere you go, we have a town that's just on the other side of the track, so to speak, that we despise and look down on. It could be a neighborhood. It could be a whole town. 
That was Nazareth. And so the, the Old Testament prophecies were saying that the Messiah, when he comes, he's going to be a person who faces rejection, a Nazarene, a nobody, someone who's looked down on, who's despised. So you starting to see what Matthew's doing? He wants you to see that the whole Bible is about Jesus and the Old Testament is pointing to this place, saying the world is a mess. But the one who's going to clean it up has been born. Look at him, and he's going to do that through a life of suffering, even as a child when he'd had no control over it. Jesus is just a baby. He's being dragged along by his parents. That even Herod's despicable rage is all part of God's plan to end tears, sorrow, and suffering through the eventual tears of his son, Jesus. I keep saying it, it is fulfilled, it is fulfilled. Look at him, pay attention to him. Watch what he's going to do as you read the rest of this book. Because he's going to die a horrible death, but he's going to rise again into a new creation that he's going to bring you into. That's why God can say it's going to get better, because he knows it will. It's part of his plan. And so my, the question is, for us who are trying to hold on to this, is can you, you trust and put your hope in this God when the suffering comes to your door? Because right, God is saying, dry your eyes, your future has a hope. It will not end, even though the, through this horror you are currently living. Right? Your life's not over. Your future's coming. Trust him. Can you say like Dostoevsky, it's in your bulletin, the quote there, I printed it for you. That we're called to believe like a child that one day suffering will be healed and everything made up for. All right, that, that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage. And that the world's finale, finale at the moment of eternal harmony, he's talking about when Jesus returns. Something so precious is going to come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, it will comfort all resentments. It will atone for all the crimes of humanity, for all the blood that they've shed, that it will not only make it possible to forgive, but justify everything that happened. That's a powerful quote. He's just looking at Jesus and saying, he's going to do it. I'm going to believe like a child, even if I don't understand the why right now. That's the first point. <laughs> We rage and grieve at a dying world, but we're called to put our hope in a good God in the midst of it. And now here comes the second humbling part, because we're called to do that in the midst of it, and that's impossible if you know your heart. Because if you look at the second point, we, we tend to rage against God's sovereign plan for us. It's verses 13 to 18. You look at Herod, you see Herod's mad at Jesus because he feels a threat to his control. He's threatened by the reality that there could be another king and his power is not part of God's plan. And he reacts with irrational, violent rage. He wants to be the captain of his soul, the master of his fate. And this is what the, this is teaching us. If you, if you know Jesus' teaching, he says anger is actually in every human heart, which means we are on the, we're not a different creature than Herod. We're just on a different end of the same scale. Because you stop and think about what is at the core of Herod's rage? He doesn't want to give up control of his life. 
And everybody who's ever met the real Jesus, the King Jesus, the one who says, I want you to take up your cross and follow me, uh, the one who says, you must look at your family members and your love for me must look like hate by comparison. Hate your mother and father. Uh, the one who says, well, foxes have holes and, and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. That's what it's going to be like to follow me, to be homeless. Right. See, the human nature, my nature, is when I'm confronted with a God who says, you have to give me everything. I am in absolute control. I, I rebel. I get angry. This is what John Stott said in his book, Basic Christianity. No one's ever had a moderate reaction to Jesus. They either get so angry they want to kill him, they fall down at his feet of worship, or they just run away in terror as they see what he's done. Same here. Herod's just on the scale. That's all of us. We fight against the fact that God tells us right and wrong. And so we're seeing something about the nature of sin and evil here. And it's in every human heart that there is a war over who's going to be in control, who is the king of our lives. And Herod hated the idea that it would be someone other than him. And do you see that's true of you? I mean, that's why prayer is so hard. That's why it's so hard to believe the gospel. And when you're in the midst of, of horror and hardship and difficulty, to believe that God really is good, even in the midst of it, and that he's not mad at me, he's not trying to get me. That's why it's so much easier just to lash out with our words instead of to be uh, slow to speak and quick to listen. That's why it's easier to, to retreat in bitter anger than forgive. Because right? we don't want God to be in control. This is the picture. If, if we were asked to have a hope, a deep-seated trust that no matter what we go through, this is part of God's plan, we must have an unshakable belief that God is good and that he is in control and that even this ho horrific trial and tribulation is part of his plan to bring us home. And I can't do that. Not in every moment. You, you get mad. You just look around and say, why is this happening now? Why me? It could be something as simple as hitting your thumb with a hammer or as it happened yesterday, a picture fell on top of my head. You don't say nice Christian things, you know, praise you, Lord. <laughs> you say it the other way around where you're, you I'm not going to say it from the pulpit. <laughs> See, that's what anger is. At its core, it's a rage against God's sovereignty. It's a rage against that the world is not as it should be. And God's saying for us, to get to the, the end, we have to have an unshakable belief that God is good. And we're being shown through Herod that's just not possible. Right. Third, there's another threat here. Right, we're called to face the reality of this world. We're called to face our own anger at God's sovereignty. And we're also called to face the fact that there is something else out there that we can't even see. Right. The rage of the dreadful dragon, which you don't see here, you see in Revelation 12. Where Revelation is a picture book and it's trying to get you to see that Herod's rage was on Herod. is absolutely his fault. It's sin, it's evil. But that the, 
This is what you read in Revelation 12, that out on the scene is a red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns, and he stood before Mary, Jesus' mother, who's about to give birth, ready to devour the child. And Mary gives birth to a child who's going to rule all the nations with an iron rod. And I know it sounds like we've left reality and we've moved into science fiction and fantasy, but what John is trying to get you to see, what the scriptures are trying to get you to see, is that we have a, an actual spiritual enemy. There is an evil one out there. And what he's saying is that the, the serpent in Eden has grown up and matured and is claiming to be king of this world. And it's a dragon. A snake has sprouted wings. He's become more threatening. And so we're not only in danger of our own hearts and a dying world, there's a personal evil one out there who's inciting you to say God is not good and that you are not good. Right. Herod's rage is demonic, is what John is telling you. And all, I'm, all I mean by that, not to, I don't want to get weird, it's just saying that Herod's rage against God's sovereignty is the same rage that, that Satan had when he rebelled in heaven. And all those who rage against God's sovereignty, well, we, we look more dragonish than like our God. And I know what I'm saying in the 21st century. <laughs> I mean, this was just on Colbert last week as uh, Andrew Garfield He's playing a Je Jesuit priest in this movie, Silence, was asked, do you believe in, in demons and the devil and all that? And he says, no, I think it's just a metaphor. But if you take that away, if you take the belief in a personal evil one, it's really hard to make sense of people like Herod to say, why would they do something so irrational? You know, like Pol Pot or Hitler, the Holocaust, just the, the sheer graphic brutality. See, the Bible is completely unashamed about the fact that our fight is not just with our own hearts and a suffering world, but there's an evil one out there who's seeking to devour you, who's accusing. Because that's what the dragon does, right? It doesn't, it sounds very strange to our ears, but he does something really simple. He turns around and looks at you and says, God can't love you, look at you. You get angry. You got angry yesterday. How can you say, how, how do you know God's really fighting for you? And so he rubs our faults and failures in our faces. And he gets us to question God's goodness in the midst of our circumstances. You know, if you were the son of God, surely you'd be more comfortable than you are right now. Or he puts the fear of death in us. You know, where we get so scared where you, you don't want to give up control. And so this is where this is going to end. How, where do you get this unshakable hope in the midst of a dying world, our own anger, our own mistrust of God, and even the, 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 the dragon, the dreadful dragon, who's inciting and pushing and saying, God is not good? And the answer is this child. <laughs> the scriptures have been fulfilled. That's what Matthew's telling you to watch. To trust Jesus, the greater Rachel, he's going to end all tears through his tears. Because look at this. One of the, the cool things that both passages quoted, Hosea 11 and Jeremiah 31, is they both say, show, paint a picture of God's heart for his son, Israel. 
If you read it, it says, Israel, how can I give up on you? I poured out my love for you. I was like a loving father. I took you by your hands. I taught you to walk. I carried you out of Egypt. I fed you. I provided for you. How can I treat you like Sodom and Gomorrah and destroy you with my wrath? I love you too much to give up on you. And the same thing in Jeremiah. How can I give up on you? You are my darling child, my beloved son. These are the exact words that God uses to describe Israel. And if he loves sinful people that much, how much more does he love his faithful son? the divine son, Jesus. See, we're being told to watch God's sovereign care and tender love the way he protects Jesus when he couldn't protect himself so that we would trust in the future that God would defend and care for us. And he does that by showing us Jesus weeping for his sinful people like Rachel. This is Matthew 23. Jesus looks at Jerusalem and says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together like a mother hen gathers her her chicks, her brood under her wings. But you didn't want me. You were not willing. I mean, it's a lament. Jesus weeps. And ultimately, just like Rachel, Jesus gives up his life in childbirth on the cross so that we might be born again so that we might become sons of God who get that kind of intense, sovereign care and attention even through horrific tragedies. You could say it this way, that Jesus wept so that you can say, you will weep no more. Jesus really is the greater Rachel who says, you can weep and rejoice at the same time. That's what the gospel calls you to do. It's a weird, it's going to feel... I don't know what the word is. I feel like you have two different things going on at once and it's hard to make sense of. But when you go through the trial of saying you can grieve because this world is falling apart. But it's also saying your grief has an end date. You have an imperishable inheritance coming your way, the new heavens and new earth. You can rejoice because you have God's fatherly love and care right here, right now. And it's permanent in Christ. I mean, again, go back to read Hosea 11 and Jeremiah 31 and hear God's heart for you. You're my darling child, my dear son. My heart yearns for you. My heart grows warm and tender as I think of you. In Christ. You get this picture of God weeping and pleading and begging for people like us to trust him. Because he has our best in mind. And because we can't trust him, he sent his son Jesus to, to trust him for us. <laughs> that's, that's what Matthew is pointing us and getting us ready for. Saying, look at Jesus who walked the same horrific, difficult footsteps that we have. He, wa- he was born into a war zone to redeem every aspect of human suffering so that there will be no part of human suffering that will not be redeemed and renewed and restored. And through the cross and resurrection, that's what he does. He slayed the dragon, he defeated death, and gave tears an expiration date. And we're called to trust him as we wait. All right? So this is not buck up and do better. This is you have a champion Jesus, a conquering king, a warrior who went through hell so that you would grieve no more. Trust him. 
Right, so, conclusion, what, what hope do we have against all of this? The rage of a dragon and death and our own sin. It's saying, one, this is how, this is how you go to, go to war. You're called to confess. Right, when there's a famous hymn, I hear the accuser roar, and of ills that I have done, things that I've done wrong. I know them well and thousands more, but God, Jehovah, knows none. Preach that to yourself. When, when you're suffering and you're saying, God must be mad at me. You're called to look at the gospel, look at what you know is true, and look at the fact that God treats you as his beloved son in Christ. And to turn around and say, yeah, it's absolutely true. I did that. But my God has turned his back on those sins in Christ. They're gone. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Jack Miller, the pastor, when he would be confronted with something he did wrong, he would turn around and smile and say, you're right, and you don't even know the half of it. <laughs> That's how you go to war. Following Jesus, the conquering king. And you receive this gift of hope because that's what it is. It's a gift. You're not going to be able to hold on yourself. You hold on to him as he will hold you fast, as we sang. All right. And I'm going to end with this picture. <laughs> I found it by accident as I was getting ready for last month's newsletter article. It's a picture of a, a dragon that's been slain by this Canadian artist, Mark Johnson. And it's this dragon who's laid out. He's got his wings that are drooped over and his tail's wrapped around. And it's a picture of two children actually playing on the corpse of this dragon. And there's a little boy who's about to step on the dragon's head. And there's another boy with a stick walking on the dragon's back. And I don't know if he's a Christian or not. I think he's just using his imagination uh, for the low, low price of 50 bucks. It could be yours. <laughs> I didn't have the rights to use it, so otherwise I would show it to you. But this is what the gospel tells you. This is Romans 16, that the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. Jesus slayed him. He's given him a mortal wound. But Paul has the audacity to turn it around and say, you, the church, all those who have trusted in him, you will be the ones to walk on his head to kill him. You are that victorious in Christ. See, Matthew 2 is this call to see Jesus, that for whom and by whom all things exist, to see him made perfect through suffering, that he might taste death for everyone, to slay the dragon, to swallow up the veil that covers all the nations, even death, and so that one day you will see that dragon defeated, and you're going to step on his head, and you're going to have a party like little children, <laughs> discovering the joy of a life where, all well, as C.L.S. Lewis put it, every chapter in, in heaven is better than the one that came before because Christ is there with us. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you for the birth of this son who uh, didn't live up in a palace but came down into a war zone. And so I pray for all of us who are grieving, you would help us trust Jesus, the greater Rachel, the King of glory the Lord of hosts, the slayer of dragons, and see that even though we don't know the why, we can trust that you are good because we see how much you love us. You gave up your only son so that we might have, might have a future and a hope. 
And so may your spirit fill us, pour out your love in our hearts that we might have a fresh awareness of the, the good news of the gospel, that it truly is finished. And we are waiting for you to bring us home. And so may we hear the words of, of Paul that, that you, our God, the God of peace, will crush Satan under our feet. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.